Welcome to Naming, Naming it, it, where we discuss pop culture, current events, and how they relate to the way that we live our lives, all through the lens of two black psychologists. Naming it is dedicated to acknowledging the elephant in the room, validating the lived experience of people of color. Coming to you from the Bay Area, California, we thank you for joining us. I'm Dr. Bedford Palmer. And I'm Dr. Lamisha Hill. Music on Naming It is provided by Lee England Jr., the soul violinist. Good morning, evening, afternoon. Yeah. Welcome to Naming It, y'all. Welcome to Naming It. We're on episode number 62. Mm-hmm. Six. <laughs> wow. What? Wow. I always say that. No, no, I'm laughing. <laughs> oh, we didn't even get introduced yet. He, he all up in the middle. <laughs> no, my man's doing, my man's doing like, like uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Barry White on us. He's like, yeah. <laughs> No, you know, number hey, you know, 62. It's the artist, it's the artist in me, No, I feel you. I just, through, I just, I just like, can't help it. I just, just can't help it. Up. I'm locked in with y'all, man. I appreciate like, it. Like, I feel like I feel we need to incorporate energy. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's episode 62. Yeah. Come on, y'all. Yeah, you know, you got to have you gotta have the ad-libs and the hype men around yeah, you. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 the energy yeah. and the people up in the room and the spirit, you know. I'm loving it. So we hear your voice. We know who you are. But for our namers, we have a special guest in the studio with us today. Yes, the illustrious, the, 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 the un, un, the un, what's, what's a good, I'm trying to like just make a big word here. I, I, I need like the, 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 the huge. <laughs> I'm trying not to leave you, the, but you the, started the, on something. Well, I'm just saying like the uncompromising, the un, un, un. Comparable? Comparable. That's what I was looking at. Uncomparable, right? Because it cannot be compared to other people. Dr. Adisa Anderson, the man. Thank you. I, I appreciate that, and I received that, and so humbled by those those kind of accolades, and and to be acknowledged in that kind of way, and, and and especially by people that that I go way back with, you know, that are like family to me, and who have seen my journey along the way. Thank you all for for having me in this space, and and for continuing to lift me up along my journey as we you know support each other and kind of move forward. So thank you for that. I that I received that those words and that affirmation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. Mm. Yeah, we have known you for a while. We all share um, a similar um, story, um, and and it, it nexuses in in the Bay Area, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, me and Lamisha have talked before about the fact that we were both um, trainees at Caps uh, in the Tang Center at uh, UC, UC Berkeley, Berkeley. Mm-hmm. and uh, you you were there as an intern. Yeah, you were there as a postdoc, mm-hmm. and you you actually stayed and and you know got that gold ring of the job because mm-hmm. yeah 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 i mean yeah i came um to so yeah so similarly like that that's that's a beautiful thing just to see how all our paths have come together and and, and cross paths over the years and mm-hmm. and partly through cal and and through grad school and yeah, our mentors yeah, and yeah. and so for me i came to uc berkeley in 2014 and 15 as a doctoral intern and then continued as as a postdoc and was eventually hired on as a full-time licensed staff psychologist and yeah. and my role since then has expired expanded you know in many different ways uh, and, and been doing a lot of good work on and off the campus so you know it's a it's a journey but uh it's 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 a it's a it's a powerful kind of movement that's happening yeah uh, yeah mm-hmm. 
I think it's kind of cool that we got like three black psychologists mm-hmm. sitting in this room Indeed. who are all brought here by Clady Davis. Indeed. Shout out Clady. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Shout out to Clady and other mentors just yeah. like him. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So. So I do have your formal bio. I know you yes, introduced yourself that. a little bit, but do you uh-huh. want me to? To the yes. formal. Okay, yes, a proper introduction is always welcomed. So we have Dr. Adisa Anderson is a licensed staff psychologist at the University of California, Berkeley, Counseling and Psycholo- Psychological Services. Also serves as the Outreach and Consultation Seminar Facilitator for the Pre-Doctoral Internship Program. He's the Coordinator of Black Mental Health Services at the Counseling Center and owner of a social justice-oriented private practice. Arisa is also a Division 17, which is the Society of Counseling Psychology, Leadership Development Institute Fellow. His clinical expertise includes African-American mental health, men's concerns, substance use, group counseling, and outreach. Arisa is also a professional and master percussionist who uses West African drumming therapeutically to promote emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual well-being. His research interests include the intersections of African-American racial identity development, personality structure, and alcohol use, as well as a separate research focus on racial minority academic persistence. Mm-hmm. All such amazing work. Mm, We're so grateful you. to have you. Thank you. Thank you. So grateful to be sharing space with you all this, this morning. Uh, truly a blessing. So, and thank you again for that, that introduction. I appreciate that. Mm. Uh, all right. So let's get into our shout-ins, shout-outs. Okay, so I a uh, couple shout outs, uh, um, shout ins, how you want to put it. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I was able to do in the interim since we've last like talked was um, I was on a, I, I guess I was a guest on a couple of different podcasts. So the Simones from Wokeland, they basically f- had us on their podcast a while back, and they. After we had talked about mental health and, and black psychology, they, um, you know, after after they had said there's this whole uh, black men's panel that they were interested in in running. Yeah. And they had invited me to kind of be the, the moderator for it. And so that was I think we talked about that sometime in the summer. Um, and so it just actually happened last week. And uh, they had a group of really cool panelists. Um, we were at um, Oak Stop on 14th in, okay. um, in Oakland. Mm hmm. And uh, which is a really cool co-work space um, that's black owned. Uh, so if y'all and they have multiple ones in the Bay Area. So if you're doing co-work and you're mm. you're a black creative or black you know business entrepreneur whoever, you can do that. We might if we want to do a live show, it's it's a dope spot. So we got to talk about black masculinity. Um, we got to talk about manhood. We talked about like relationships um, and like not just like the whole binary heteronormative relationship pieces, but like just like how do black men relate you know, to each other, to the mm. world, to like people in different genders and all that stuff. It went really, really well. I I, I was really um, happy to, to be a part of such a really cool group um, of folks and to, to be able to, to, to structure it in certain ways, but then also to like be able to hear some of the really awesome answers that folks had. I don't know when they're going to put it out, but, uh, you know, if y'all want to, if you want to go onto my social media or onto Wokeland social media, there's like a little tidbits about it and stuff. But uh, I, I was really excited to be part of like, it yeah. was because it was like a real mm. community panel. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and I got a chance to hear about it. Mm-hmm. I ran into a, a friend, a homie uh, who's videographer, Theo, okay. and he was there and he, and he was like, oh, I saw your, your co-host and he did this panel and it was really mm. awesome. So, mm, yeah. yes. 
Yeah, it was cool. Word yeah. on the street is it yeah. was awesome. Yeah, and I and I I also saw like you know the the advertisements and and you know the social media that was promoting like that space that you're creating and just was really like you know proud to hear about the spaces that you're creating you know to talk about and explore and unpack you know black masculinity especially in the Bay Area and just across the country and so really appreciate seeing you you know just create more space for it more, to have more of those dialogues those real and serious dialogues that oftentimes space is not created to to be to be had and to hear from the authentic voices of all the diverse representation that you had on that panel so so thank you for for doing that yeah you got anybody you want to shout in yeah yeah so so thank you for that um you know so there's a there's a few people that i that i want to shout in uh just starting off with my family because i just feel like i have so many so much of my inspiration really comes from from my family so 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 my mother and father um, sakar ingrid thomas anderson and Adisa Michael Anderson and my younger brother, you know, Taharka Anderson and my older sister Trinice. And um and and also just like some of some of my mentors who've really like, you know, helped pave the way and and it's because of them that that I'm that I'm here today. So, you know, folks like that, you know, we all know within this room, including you know, the late Dr. Joseph White, uh, you know, godfather of black psychology and and Dr. Thomas Parham and and folks like Dr. Jeanette Castellanos from back from UC Irvine, and and other folks like we mentioned, like Dr. Clady Davis. These are all Black folks and persons of color who have really just paved the way and and created space for our communities to continue to advance, and have really poured so much into me over the years. And so I really have to always honor these individuals when when, when I whenever I walk through spaces, but also just to shout out or shout in. Um, the, our ancestors that have sacrificed so that we can be here today, so that we can come together as black folks in this room, as black mental health professionals, to be having these dialogues and to be, you know, sharing a narrative, you know, with the world about the importance of of black community, you know, black mental health, black wellness, and so, so yeah, so those are some of the folks that I that I, that I want to shout out and, and shout in. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it is September, and there's another number of birthdays in my collective of family and friends. And so I just want to give a few birthday shout-outs, starting with my older sister, Natasha Hill. Happy birthday. Um, and she shares a birthday with my Bay Area bestie, which I don't think is by coincidence. Uh, I think essentially, you know, she's my my other sister. Uh, India, happy birthday, India. I want to give a shout-out to my dad. His birthday was in September. Happy birthday, dad. And my other chosen sister, Melody, Dr. Melody Hayes, happy birthday. And I hope you have a beautiful journey uh, in South America. That's what I got. All right. So, uh, ready to... Yeah, let's shift gears into what's going on. All right. Let's play the jams. So, go ahead. Y'all do that. What's going on? (laughs) Hey. No, no. What's going on? (laughs) You just clip that and use that for the rest of the time. (laughs) Cool. All right. So, what's going on, yo? So, there's, you know, we, we... oftentimes starting in place of politics so there's a, there's a big thing happening right now that I don't think we can really skip over which is is there finally enough evidence of wrongdoing with our current president that there will be an impeachment I don't think it had anything to do with enough evidence um, there's been enough evidence since before the dude got put in office but you know it's evidence mm-hmm. that they like it's evidence that they that they want to use I, I've been so okay. Mm-hmm. If for folks who haven't been paying attention, mm-hmm. uh, there's been a whistleblower mm-hmm. who came out and said and uh, basically let it be known that uh, pre- that 45 President Trump 
uh, was talking to the president of um, Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine mm-hmm. and uh, and basically tried to collude with him mm-hmm. to look and investigate his political rival, i.e. Mm-hmm. Joe Biden and his son, in trade for U.S. aid, mm-hmm. um, which is basically, I mean, like, basically he's saying, we'll give you money and you go get rid of my enemies. Well, and it's also a bit of a threat because he's withholding aid as well. Well, yeah, but I mean, I think uh, like for, for us, yeah. yeah, but for us, it's like more of he he's messing with, he's telling the Ukraine to mess with our political process, right? So, like... This is this is what we've been talking about since mm-hmm. the beginning with Russia and mm-hmm, like with mm-hmm. like all the stuff. He wants other people to he wants foreign entities to infect American politics, which is against the Constitution. It's against the law and it is impeachable. And the mm-hmm. dude, I mean, but like I think so. The reason I'm saying that is evidence that they're willing that they're they're OK with at this point is because mm-hmm. it's really clear cut and it has nothing to do with his other egregious stuff around women, around people of color, around black mm-hmm. people, around like the way that he's hurt people in the U.S. Mm-hmm. because his base are cool with him hurting people mm-hmm. and doing racist stuff and doing sexist stuff. But, you know, him cheating against another white dude, that might be something that they're not willing to, mm-hmm. to, to let, let lie. And I think that's, you know, part of what's interesting, you know, within this conversation and part of like, you know, what, what we're speaking about is just issues around white, white privilege and white male privilege and, and, and pa- patriarchy and, and, you know, that that someone like President Forty Five, you know, just just Trump, just can can do all these egregious things, you know, from the meddlings in Russia, Russia previous election to like these things with Ukraine, and and to still be in in a, in a space of presidency, I, I just I just strongly believe that if this individual had been a, a person of color or an African American male, you know, things this person would have been impeached a long time ago, or that that systemic oppressive spaces would have like removed this person from the presidential like office a long time ago. But of course, you know that we have systems like white supremacy and, and white superiority that are really like, you know, pushing and, 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 and encouraging the narrative that, that Trump, you know, represents. And, and so, so now we're dealing with having to find what is considered legitimate reasons to impeach a, a president. When we've, like you said, we've had a long history of, of things that could have removed someone like, you know, from office a long time ago and and but we're still like you know, having debates about is what has been done an mm-hmm. impeachable process yet yeah. right. and that and i think a big part of it is that it requires the courage of people willing to give up their seat mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. because when mm-hmm. they put their name on something and when they sign their name on something and i'm talking about you know people in congress people in the senate and if their base doesn't agree with what they're doing or whatnot then, hey, then perhaps then those aren't the people that you want to be representing anyway. So there's this there's this game that I think a lot of politicians play, mm-hmm. which is about their own self-preservation, mm-hmm. which keeps them from being, I think, courageous and and authentic in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But I think that those politicians, that, that, that behavior is actually protected by a lot of media. Like, I don't know if you noticed this, but during this whole conversation, there's been a lot of media outlets who have done this false equivalency thing that they, similar to what they do with climate change, where they're like, well, there's this opinion and there's this opinion, but there's like, wait, well, there's a Nobel laureate opinion and then there's like Joe the Plumber's opinion. Like, mm-hmm. like I'm going to go with the Nobel, but they made it seem like it's the same. And they're doing the same thing in terms of like uh, Trump's base. They're saying mm-hmm. that like Trump's base is super... Um, 
is like more influential than it is, you know, and mm-hmm. they're acting like, well, you know, what's the what's the fallout for the Democrats if they do this? It's like nothing. The the Trump people ain't swing voters. The Trump people ain't gonna like come back and like like they're not they're going to support this dude to the hilt because like he supports racism, he supports mm-hmm. sexism, he mm-hmm. supports xenophobia, he wants to put kids in cages. They love that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, they they love hurting people. Mm-hmm. And so like for us to like pretend as if like we're gonna be able to pull some support from them or any of that stuff, or that they would change their identity in any way, it doesn't make any sense. And yet we keep hearing these kind of equivalency statements around like, well, you know, what's gonna happen? What's the backlash? What's the you know, what we need to be talking about is are Republican politicians and Republican senators, Republican House members and all the people in the Republican Party, like are y'all for or against the Constitution of the United States? Are you for or against our country? Are you for or against a free election process, right? Like, the idea that you would see a president break the law over and over and over again and put your political power and your political party over the American people, I mean, it's a disgusting mm-hmm. kind of behavior that that should not be tolerated in our politicians, but we don't ask that question. Mm-hmm. We ask about, like, the political, like, ramifications and, like, how are you going to, you know, are you going to go with your base? Are you going to do this thing? No, are you going to be a good American citizen? Mm-hmm. That's what I want to ask and all these Republicans. And uphold your ethical responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. are you going to do your job? Mm-hmm. And, like, mm-hmm. and if you don't, if you support a guy who's colluding with foreign, foreign powers, then... Yeah, you know what? That means you're colluding with him too. Mm-hmm. You know, and like he, Trump loves to call people treasonous. He says it over and over. He calls people, he says treason, 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 treason. You talking to the president, like the our president talking to the presidents of other countries about rigging our elections, mm-hmm. that's treasonous. And supporting that is also treasonous. So like, yo, Mitch McConnell, what's up? Like, I already know which side you're on, so I ain't even tripping. But I'm saying all the other people around this dude... Mm-hmm. Like, are you going to go down, too? Because this can't this can't last. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So we've been doing a little what we like to call campaign 2020 updates. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been a number of debates most recently. And I think that in the polls right now, we have Senator Elizabeth Warren in the lead. Is that 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 mm. I thought Biden was what happened? Yeah. Something changed? I think something yeah. changed. Okay. Oh. Mm. All right. Okay. I think something changed. And mm. one of the pieces that I just wanted to mm-hmm. highlight, uh, you know, on a, on a lot of the the different perspectives, but one of the things that I think is really relevant to our listeners and to mm. a lot of the work that we do is around um, college access and mm. uh, student loan debt forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And it was Elizabeth Warren mm-hmm. who actually first I think started a really intentional conversation about loan forgiveness, not just about creating more access, um, mm. re- recognizing the impact that student loan debt has on this sort of generation of of mm-hmm. folks that are trying to m- make their way in the world and start careers and mm-hmm. do other things, and just how oppressive that is. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I mean, it's such an important conversation to be having, especially around like the politics in these campaigns that are coming up is, is, is how are we increasing access to education for all communities, not just privileged communities. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so thank you for, for acknowledging the piece around how we're going to manage and address student loan debt, uh, the, 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 the significant and expensive cost of education. Uh, it's definitely something that truly needs to be a part of what, the conversation of whatever 
uh, candidates who will potentially be elected or run run for the presidency. Because, you know, as we understand, like, you know, education, like I, th- I think about different and powerful quotes that have been said, you know, including like Malcolm X in terms of like education is the passport to the future. Mm-hmm. And so if we don't do whatever we can to, again, increase access and decrease the barriers, you know, for marginalized communities, for black and brown communities, then we are really like crippling, you know, our, our communities from being able to have a way to advance themselves um, and, and, and elevate themselves as, as we move forward as a community and society. And, and I'm also thinking about, um, thank you for acknowledging that piece around Elizabeth Warren, really introducing this, um, this idea and this topic of really bringing, bringing, putting forward the piece around student loan debts and, and, and the cost of like college. And, and I'm also really appreciating folks like, like Kamala Harris, who have like more of a kind of a progressive and more fully drawn out kind of like plan for for ways to make college more affordable and 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 ways to decrease costs from making community college free for your universities free um, figuring out ways to to eliminate like student loan debts um, so you know folks like Kamala Harris and even like you know Cory Booker who who has you know historically supported you know the the alleviation of certain types of like loans um, kind of spaces. And so, yeah, Cory Booker has this really interesting perspective. I don't know if I've heard other candidates talk about it, uh, about really starting a college fund for mm-hmm. every newborn child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, $1,000. And it's like, a, mm-hmm. yeah, the $1,000 that mm-hmm. is uh, attached to this child. And then it's run by the U.S. Treasure, Treasury. Mm-hmm. And I believe you could add to it if you, if you you know, have want to in- invest more into mm-hmm. it. But uh, the idea is that that should grow over 18 years mm-hmm. and at least be something. And based on what research shows is that essentially when kids, when, when young people know that there is some money for them, they're mm-hmm. more apt to go to college rather than thinking that they have nothing. So mm-hmm. why yeah. try? Mm-hmm. or why go yeah. so, it's, so it's part of that kind of like growth mindset piece mm-hmm. around helping people shift their their mindset in a way that will lead to them moving in those directions of mm-hmm. access but yeah. what do you want to say Bedford I you know I I, I don't like gimmicky stuff mm-hmm. um, and it's funny because I just recently in my head was doing the like I was like what would it mean like to build a college fund for a kid like what is that actually how do you really do that effectively and if we're talking about college rates as they are right now I realize that to go to the average college like you know and like state and UC is a little bit lower like it's lower on low end on the expense even though it's really high end on like what you get back in the mm-hmm. education but if you're going to add private schools in there then it's, I mean, like if you're talking about like 40 grand per year kind of situation, 40 to 60 grand per year, you're talking about over a thousand dollars, like probably like two grand a month that needs to go in over the course of the kid's life for them to actually be able to pay for college. Mm-hmm. So, like a thousand dollars from the government, you know, that one, and then talking about maybe building interest on it. Mm-hmm. Like, if, if it's a thousand dollars a week for the government, yep, bet. I'm with you, Corey. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you right there. But if you're talking about just putting a grand in, I'm talking about like, yo, one jet, one one of these like stealth jets will just take care of all the black folks college for the next like, you know, however many decades. Yeah. So let me ask you, let me ask you this question real quick, which is about, you know, Andrew Rang, which his perspective isn't brand new. I think other people have floated this idea in other Mm -hmm. spaces, uh, but he's kind of tried to repackage it and bring it forward. Mm -hmm. He refers to it as the freedom dividend, Mm -hmm. um, which which is basically universal basic income which is $1,000 for every adult, like, age 18 to... I don't think it goes all the way to, like, 80. I think it caps out when perhaps Social like Security Medicare or Medicare yeah. kick in. So somewhere around, like, that, you know, 50, 60 mark. $1,000 a month for every adult. That's not... 
what you gonna do with a thousand dollars a month? Mm-hmm. That's well, like, yeah. I mean, like that's poverty. That's twenty four thousand dollars, or that's mm-hmm. that's a uh, twelve thousand dollars a year. The the essence is, you know, I, I think he pitches it as universal basic income, which which provides some sort of resource for people that are doing work that is not compensated currently, whether that's elder care, child care, um, thinking about people that live in uh, multi-intergenerational households, mm-hmm. right? And so then, yes, that might be in a, a level of poverty for one single adult, but if you are in a household where maybe there are three adults, right? Like, that's a different story. I, again, I just, and you know, what I'd like to do, I haven't done this comparison, right? But like, mm-hmm. what, how much can you get from like food stamps and like federal assistance and whatnot? And I and think that that assistance? is the thing that, I don't know if those things will still be in place. Yeah, then. so right. I, I mean, like, I wish that folks would, one, I get kind of insulted by some of this stuff because I'm like, mm-hmm. yo, you think we don't know math? Like, mm-hmm. yo, $12,000 $12, a year, like the mm-hmm. poverty line in, in uh, on average in America is somewhere around $24,000 a year. Mm-hmm. So you're half the poverty line with this like supposed income. I'm I'm all for it as like a, a underlying like wage for folks, but it needs to be at a level mm-hmm. that's going to actually let people live because here's the other thing that happens. Like, the way that our economy works is that it takes into account any stuff like this. And so if we add that, then people are going to start trying to take money away from workers, mm-hmm. you know, and they're like, oh, you're taken care of by the government, so we don't mm-hmm. have to pay you as much. Mm-hmm. And so there mm-hmm. has to, it's, it's a much more complex um, mm-hmm. issue. Like, for instance, what happened in the Bay Area, a lot of Bay Area cities have taken on this um, for restaurants you pay us an extra yeah. fee yep. to mm-hmm. give people mm-hmm. tips, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. But then when you talk to somebody who's working in the restaurant, what they tell you is that, oh, well, because you're paying this fee, like they've also reduced this and they've taken this back and they've done this to mm-hmm. me. So like basically I'm making less now. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have the automatic you know, service fee for, for folks who are doing service jobs. I'm saying we need to also protect them on the back end. And we have mm-hmm. to think more complexly about the way that we do these things because business people, I mean, the the point of doing business is to make money. And if you like live your life by that credo, that makes you kind of garbage towards people. You know what I'm saying? Cause you, you basically hurt people. And a lot of business owners do that to folks. Mm-hmm. I've been at places mm-hmm. just down the street from my house where I'm like, oh, yeah, we're paying this tax, but now I still need to pay. So I'm paying the fee, and then I pay an extra tip to the person because I know they're not getting paid. So now mm-hmm. what ends up happening is that that business, they pocket that money. I think the same thing happens when we talk about, like, oh, we're just going to give a check to somebody. And that's a solution. I'd rather have an integrated solution that includes the check, mm-hmm. but also includes a bunch of other stuff. You know, I need a full mm-hmm. holistic package. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of with you, um, Adi saw around, like, I feel like when I hear people talking about, it, I think that Elizabeth Warren like talks holistically about a lot of stuff, and so does Kamala Harris. Mm-hmm, and I, mm-hmm. I feel like resonant mm-hmm. between those two people more yeah. more than anybody else. So I wanna I wanna keep us going. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna play a little bit of Time Master. There is mm-hmm. one other thing that I really 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 want to touch on and what's going on, which is the trial that's happening right now down in Dallas, Texas, mm-hmm. um, centered around Botham Jean and mm-hmm. the um, release police officer who mm-hmm. entered his apartment uh, thinking that it was hers the murderer. and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. shot and killed this mm-hmm. man. Mm-hmm. And the thing, so there are two things that happened in the news. Mm-hmm. One, um, well. One thing in particular is that what is circulating right now in news media is images and videos of this lady mm-hmm. 
crocodile crocodile tearing right. mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. on the witness stand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, go ahead, go ahead. You. No, no, I, I just, you know, what, what, what comes up for me as we, you know, have this discussion is, is just issues around, again, like, you know, white privilege, but also like inability to ha- hold, po- hold police systems and, and oppressive spaces like this accountable, you know, for, for, for a white woman to be able to walk into a home of a, of a black male and, and, and shoot him and, and claim self-defense um, when, as, as you read the reports and the research and the articles, they clearly show that this this officer had many opportunities to avoid this this negligent behavior, and 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 still we are creating you know folks are creating an argument that that kind of supports and justifies how this you know person's actions you know like played out in this specific space space and and because there's a lack of accountability for historically like like supremacist kind of organizations or oppressive spaces and police apparatus, we have an abuse of of the community, we have a marginalization of the community, like ongoing, like manslaughtering of like black and brown communities because mm-hmm. there's there's a lack of spaces that protect these communities, and and for you to just be an innocent, mm-hmm. you know, black male, that's very that's very like angering and frustrating for me that you can't even sit and talking speaking speaking of what we were talking about safety, you know, right. early on the fact that you can't even sit in your own home and in a space of peace without worrying about someone being able to walk into your space and take your life is 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 very problematic, and and we just need to be doing more to change policies and practices and Mm -hmm. and to examine for example when this person came into his home how how did you react you know she she immediately claimed that she was so scared that she needed to take his life but there were so many other steps that she was that she missed that she was supposed to implement such as what happened to the de-escalation within that process what happened to police policies around calling for backup before you know taking someone's life or being trigger you know overly overly trigger happy Mm -hmm. and and so this really comes down to well, what really is happening in the minds of like you know white folks in um in, in supremacist spaces when they interact with black communities, and how do you how do you visualize black communities? The implicit bias, the the discriminatory, the, the stereotypical views of angry black men, or, or hypermasculization, uh, hypermasculinity, or overly aggressive you know black males, and what is the narrative of black men mm-hmm. that contributes to and perpetuates you know um the, their lives being taken because black men are constantly villainized in our society? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, just like I have like, I think that all the things that you said are are valid. And I want to add like another side mm-hmm. to it, which is like just the way that the criminal justice system mm-hmm. treats like white people and white women and, and police officers. Uh, it freaks me out. Like when I saw the, the, the little images of this woman crying and how the nation cares about that, you know, and like how I predict that this person is probably going to get a slap on the wrist in some way and like some reduced charges and people are going to be like, oh, we need to be compassionate and all this other stuff. And at the same time, in that same courtroom, some black person was probably put in jail for like 15, 20, 30 years over marijuana or something. You know what I'm saying? Like, so like when we sit there and we, we do all this humane stuff, right, for specific privileged people. And then completely ignore the pain of other people, mm-hmm. you know. And mm-hmm. it irks me even more because when we're talking about a police officer, I I still don't under. I mean, I do understand it, but like someone needs to explain to me out of these spaces why police officers get passes on making mistakes that they were mm-hmm. trained not to make mm-hmm. when exactly. other people don't get passes on that. Mm-hmm. Like we put millions of dollars into each police officer who goes out on the street and does stuff, right? They are trained to use their weapon. They're trained not to use their weapon. They're trained to do all these different things. And then they go out 
and they make these mistakes and suddenly, oh, you know, like we need to, we need to be, you know, understanding, blah, blah, blah. No one else gets that. If you're mm-hmm. a physician mm-hmm. and you make a mistake, they're like, you are a physician. How could you make this mistake? Mm-hmm. If you're a psychologist, you make a mistake. If you're a journalist and you make this mistake. If you're a burger, if you flip burgers and you make a mistake, they're like, we trained you on this. You should know better than that. Like, you should know that you should hold the burger. You should put the burger on. It should stay on for a minute and 30 seconds and needs to be flipped at this time. You didn't do it. You've done it multiple times. You got to get out of McDonald's now because you're not following what you're trained on. For police, though, they shoot somebody in the head and it's like, oh, you're bad. We'll give you some we'll give you some counseling because you probably feel bad about it. I just think that, you know, I there's a there's a part, you know, as this as this unfolds. How do we come back to ah, man, I'm, I'm stuck here because I, I, I want to say something positive. But there's there's so much there's so much history around mm-hmm. the outcome being skewed in a certain direction that it's hard to be hopeful, right? It's mm-hmm. hard to to think in a space of where where is the where is the where is the light, you know? Where where is their movement? Where is their change? Mm-hmm. And just to even watch some of the body cam video footage, mm-hmm. you know, that's evidence all all that I would say that anybody would need to see, right? Mm-hmm. The, the way in which this person reacted after they killed somebody, no CPR. All, the first thing that they did was they went and called somebody and said they messed up. Yeah. Come help mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. that's what it was. Mm-hmm. It was like, I mean, and this is... You gotta be kidding me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I feel you about like wanting to help, but I also think that like sometimes the only re- response is anger. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like sometimes you just have to be enraged by the things that people do and, and focus on making them change that behavior, making that behavior not happen anymore. And with policing in the United States, I mean, like, the problem is, is that we give such huge passes. Mm-hmm. I was just watching this show. Um, Adam, I don't know if y'all like this show. It's called Adam Ruins Everything. I usually mm-hmm. love that show because mm-hmm. it's about research and the guy, and he's funny, it's quirky, mm-hmm. it is what it is. But he did a one on policing, and he spent so much time capping for police. He, mm-hmm. he just wanted to make it so clear that he wasn't talking about police, and it was like he's doing all this bad apple nonsense, and... And I'm just looking at like privilege playing itself out. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. like, dude, you're talking about. I mean, we, when we're talking about the the things that police officers do, you have to own like the officer has to own that too. People talk about bad apples. I want to talk about good apples. You know what I'm saying? There are a few good apples in these police organizations. You know what I'm saying? But mm-hmm. like, the mm-hmm. the for a system to continue to be over-militarized and to be exploitative and oppressive and for these raids to happen and for SWAT to work the way it does, people have to follow these orders. And we went back, you go back to Nuremberg and even European people say that following orders is not an excuse, you know? So like, I want to ask about who are these police officers who step away from that and are able to like do good community policing and all that kind of stuff and who whistleblow and do that. The, the whistleblowers, the, the people on internal affairs, those people, those are the folks who I want to be the, the, the model of police. But in fact, those are the people who are ostracized by police, mm-hmm. you know. And so that's a problem when you're supposed to be bringing justice to everybody, but you can't take justice yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Think, so we're, okay. I want to uh, we have a whole lot to oh, get oh, yeah, into, sure, yeah. which mm-hmm. is really because I, I want to mm-hmm. pull I want to pull a little boomerang all the way back. Um, because y'all were having, y'all were starting to have a conversation around black men and masculinity and, and the, the, the thing that you did on the panel, the work that you do in your research. And I know that want to kind of spring down into real talk. 
Real talk. Mm-hmm. And just really have an opportunity to, t- to connect more with you, Dr. Anderson, mm-hmm. uh, about your background, the some of the beautiful things that you had shared about the <clears throat> healing that comes mm-hmm. from African drumming mm-hmm. um, and also really want to anchor into, uh, you know, I think it would be a miss for our audience if we didn't get to talk about, you know, those those elements. So I just want to mm-hmm. to put a little bookmark there. Is that OK? Yeah. Cool. Mm, sounds good. All right. So we had a we we kind of had a little check in conversation. Mm-hmm. Where a lot of oohs and ahs are coming mm-hmm. up, but I I wonder if you can share a little bit more about um, where you come from as mm-hmm. that relates to you know your lineage mm-hmm. and um, the lessons and the identity formation that came from your parents and others. Mm-hmm. Yes. No. Thank you. Thank you for that, and I appreciate and continuing the conversation. You know, you know from our recent check in. Uh, so so yeah. So. Part of my story really, you know, starts from like, like I said, uh, really being connected with my family and and recognizing those those roots and the ways that they've inspired me and and I think re- really where I, it's important for me to start from is like the role that like my, my parents have have played in and and my upbringing and my process and and the values that they poured into me over the years that have helped me to navigate navigate you know society in the way in the way that I do and you know just starting off with <clears throat> the short version of it is that. I come from a family of, of community activists, uh, a family of, of artists, and, and, and part of that is, is my parents, um, over, over 30 years ago, established a nonprofit cultural organization dedicated to the preservation of African rural history. And you know this was significant because this was during a time where our culture and our history was being, you know, continuing to be stripped from our people and that you know, black folks were not really being taught about your history beyond the American slave trade. And so from my parents, they, as they evolved and came into their, their cultural consciousness, they recognized the importance of really teaching our people where they really come from and the impact that they can have and really empowering folks to, to navigate the society in a more, a more efficacious way. And, and, the, and the short version of it is that they established this nonprofit cultural organization that it's a larger theatrical performance um, that utilizes students from K through 12 school districts and, and that also is uh, about cultural empowerment and leaders, literacy development. And, and the artistic piece that's beautiful that happens within this is that my father has an acting background and my mother has a, a fashion designing background. So my, my father um, does the narrating for this, for this theatrical performance. And my mother has created all of the African pageantry for, for this theatrical performance that can be as large as a, a, a cast of like 100 individuals and has toured around the country from spaces from like, you know, at many different universities like Morehouse and Cal State Long Beach and USC and internationally to, to Egypt and, and really, you know, providing history not only to, to, to black folks, but all to, to many different communities um, about the African culture. And, and I just, and through that, I grew up seeing my parents uh, I grew up, you know, people ask, where did your interest around like outreach and, and programming come from and, and the advancement of black culture? And I, well, I grew up around a family and a family that unfortunately many of our black folks in communities don't, don't get to be surrounded by where I grew up seeing them interacting with school districts like the Long Beach and LA Unified School Districts and, and challenging the school systems to talk about, well, what what uh, what are the culturally, where are the culturally relevant curriculums and and, and, and asking the questions around well, what do the history books teach, you know, 
you know, black and brownness, but especially black students and in, in terms of world history are and, and, and what is the narrative and who's writing the textbooks and, and does the narrative start within a, a space of oppression in terms of the American slave trade or are, are black communities taught about West, you know, West African and other advanced African civilizations prior to enslavement and oppressed spaces? Mm-hmm. And then also mm-hmm. reflecting on how does that impact black people psychologically and that's really the lens that I that I come into it with is how are black folks impacted psychologically when we believe that our our community started from spaces of oppression and and so those are so that's kind of like where, where what I grew up around and and that's something yeah. that really influences who I am yeah I think you make such a beautiful point I'm just gonna kind of reiterate and, and let Beth Fruit kind of jump in but but really hearing you say what what happens to Black and African identified folks psychologically mm-hmm. when we have been taught and told that our, our history starts in a place of oppression and mm-hmm. enslavement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So mm-hmm. I, can I get a can I get a little bit of a shameless plug? No, Because please. you told me something yes. really cool about your dad oh, the yeah, other night. Yeah, indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> There's a great fun yeah. fact mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. Adisa's mm-hmm. father, mm-hmm. Mr. Anderson. Yeah. What, what is that? Yeah, so... so Many people don't know, but the interesting thing is that I, I told you that my father, he, he's got his, some of his training and, and fine arts and, and, and acting from, from UCLA. And soon after um, finishing his, his, his Master's of Fine Arts, one of his first largest kind of uh, career opportunities was to play the leading male actor in a, a nationally recognized and... and and, and film that has received a lot of accolades over the years called Daughters of the Dust. Um, the film is called Daughters of the Dust, and it came out over 25 years ago, um, directed by Julie Dash. And, and it's just a beautiful, powerful story, like t- telling the story of like coming out of the American slave trade and, and, and African and black communities trying to make a decision about whether or not they wanted to locate, you know, to the, relocate to the States or, or stay in various island communities in the Carolinas. And so my my father was the leading male actor in that film, and it's a it's a film that is currently literally in Netflix right now. You can go look up the film right now and look up his his name and the credits on. Uh, he's either listed under his birth name Michael Anderson or the name that he took on in college, Adisai Anderson. And and so yeah, it's it's a beautiful thing to see like a black male, you know, and and your father having like influenced spaces in that way nationally and internationally and and then also to think about the way that it continues to influence our yeah. our society. Yeah. You know? So I, I was saying for some people that don't know, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of uh, Beyonce's formative mm-hmm. album around formation and all of those uh, visual elements mm-hmm. really were adopted from Daughters of the Dust. And I think exactly. that she gives credit to it, but I think that sometimes when I think but we've talked about this, like yeah. when there's so much Eliminate. celebrity Yeah. Oh eliminate, excuse yeah. me, you're right for Lemonade, that that all of that comes from a place. And sometimes people don't realize and they might make assumptions that, you know, that artist, you know, came up with something new. And really, you Mm -hmm. know, the credit goes back to um, this filmmaker Mm -hmm. and all of the work that that they did in preserving the history and the legacy of the Gullah uh, Nation within the Carolinas. So Mm -hmm. beautiful. Yeah. So I'm I'm wondering, like, um, you're coming from this strong lineage of activists and whatnot. Can you tell us more about, like, what you do, like, and how that relates to social justice? Yeah, yeah. And and so for sure, and, 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 and sparse with without that is, is, excuse me, is my is my mother who had endured a a lot of points of like the social justice starts with how I how I, you know, position myself for my parents. So my mother had overcome a lot of different points of trauma throughout her life from from because it's because really my social justice lens is informed by what I saw, like, you know, throughout my life and also what I saw, excuse me, in my communities. And so seeing 
a mother who had dealt with different types of trauma from um, being a single parent earlier on prior to meeting my dad to being a teen mother and, and what that felt like to have to navigate through that as a black woman and and then trying to like build a strong black family and 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 so so through observation of spaces like that as well as like the ways that I saw my family impacted not just my immediate but my larger family impacted by systemic oppression and, and lack of resources in the community these things also kind of influence my social justice lens and and so most most currently um, there, there's a number of things that I, I continue to engage with um, most recently at, at UC Berkeley I so just just being a, a staff psychologist there I am the and and one who is the mental health liaison to the African-American Student Development Office and the Black Recruitment and Retention Center that's been a, where a lot of my social justice work has happened because one of my messages throughout life has been how can we really understand ourselves in a different way as black individuals and how can we use things such as psychology or mental health as a vehicle for like psychological liberation because you know although like you know many of our communities are no longer physically enslaved many of our communities are still psychologically enslaved or oppressed and so how can we use the like a vehicle of mental health and psychology to really be able to help elevate our our people um, to move forward and so yeah, so so those that's where a lot of my social justice work happens, and so most recently, as we were speaking about issues of police violence, those are some of the things that I've actually been brought on most recently. Uh, well, these are things that I've been historically like interested in and 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 addressing, but most recently on the campus, as issues of UC University police the um, police violence have unfolded around the country and including at UC Berkeley. There have been incidences that have happened on campus, and the thing that's been unique this time around in terms of how we respond is that we've we've developed a more holistic perspective where various the parts of various parts of the campus have come together, various departments from equity and inclusion and the chancellor's office, and 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 then now this time the 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 mental health lens of me as as a as an individual with a expertise around the psychology of black men and and racial trauma has been brought in to develop more holistic ways to respond to issues of police violence um, as we move forward so yeah can yeah. I can I ask for both of y'all to add a little bit of clarity around you know how would you explain for someone that's like uh, yes I understand what you know what terms like masculinity mean but what is at the heart of of black identity and black male masculinity and and some of either the myths or misconceptions but also perhaps the celebrations and the spaces of resilience how do you define mm -hmm. it or like what what is the conversation kind of look like mm -hmm. yeah well you know in terms of just reflecting on Black masculinity, it's, it's just, the thing that really comes up for me is, is the ways that, that black men are misunderstood in, in America and, and the ways that, you know, black men are oftentimes villain, villainized, and including in my own experience, you know, over, throughout life and throughout graduate school, um, feeling invalidated, being scapegoated at times in different parts of my graduate school walk, and, and all, the, all of the ways that I had to be able to counter that narrative and surround myself with other positive black men in order to know how to like successfully navigate these spaces that that include like predominantly white spaces, so so I think what's really important is when we talk about black masculinity to kind of really center that back um, and relate it with what is the Afrocentric way of thinking about ourselves and and not a Eurocentric and Western way of thinking about masculinity because oftentimes when we talk about masculinity in America, the you know the stereotype around masculinity is that you need to be strong or stoic and and not connected with your emotions and, and always have things packaged, but really a more healthier view of masculinity and a more Afrocentric view of black masculinity is to, to be 
connected with your and have an internal sense of awareness to understand your culture and community and to actually be compassionate and understand your emotions and 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 to be willing to be vulnerable you know with yourself and with your 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 people who are in your closest that you're in closest relationship with so i believe that this is a much more healthier way of looking at black masculinity and masculinity in general and uh, and a way and a lens around masculinity that pushes against this whole idea that we've been talking around talking about around uh, related to toxic masculinity yeah so mm -hmm. anything you want to add to that bedford i don't think you got it you know like that mm -hmm. that's uh i i i think that that's a um a pretty holistic way of understanding it. Mm -hmm. yeah and so some of the work that i do that i continue to do in relations to addressing issues like this is for example at, at the UC Berkeley Counseling Center. The, the interesting thing is that while Berkeley is a space that has historically, you know, prided itself on, you know, you know spaces like free speech movement and, and being about diversity and inclusion, in many ways, we still need to continue to push the envelope to really be sure that we, you know, Berkeley doesn't rest on its merrills, uh, on, excuse me, rest on its laurels, and, and to continue to see what are the blind spots that, e you know, even like credible universities like that are having. And so what I did when I came to UC Berkeley was I helped to expand the outreach, because one of the other areas that I'm really passionate about is outreach. And, and mental health and so really like being present in the communities not just within the counseling center walls talking about mental health but really connecting with um, african-american students and at the fannie lou hamer you know resources the fannie lou hamer black resource center and being you know present at various you know visiting various black identified organizations and talking about mental health and helping destigmatize mental health because so many of the black communities that we come from have not, you know, there's, it's, it's been a luxury to even know about mental health and there hasn't been conversations that have been had for various reasons. So to be to begin to like really create space for our communities to understand mental health and to understand how to access mental health and utilize mental health has been a really important thing for me. And so that's been through connecting with various organizations, through building programs on campus and, and contributing to programs on campus like the Black Barbershop, which has been done at some other universities, but we've also, we've also like taken on this program at UC Berkeley, which creates a space to talk about well health and wellness for for black men and to talk about issues related to how we understand ourselves and brotherhood and building community and ways to be able to connect in a more um, kind of a holistic way and 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 to understand our identities in a more effective way. and i I, I typically bring the mental health lens to spaces like that. As well as like you know just building other programs and doing outreach around campus that really taps into just really taps into just really con connecting with especially marginalized communities around mental health lenses. Yeah. Cool, cool. Um, so like one of the things that when we we talk about kind of like the stuff that we're doing out there and like the energy that goes into that, like, um, and I think you've already kind of talked about the lineage and like where it's coming from for you. So I'm, I'm wondering like, how do you take care of yourself while you're trying to kind of take in all of this, like while you're doing all these different kinds of work in these different settings? Mm -hmm. Yes. No, thank you for, for asking about that. Cause it's so important, you know, as, as, especially as mental health professionals, we give so much of ourselves on a, on a daily basis that it's so important for us to especially have an awareness around how do we revitalize ourselves and, 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 and be sustainable you know, as we as we as we move forward, and and so for me, part of that starts with um, something that I that that I was connected with, you know, really early on in my life, which is that of, that of West African drumming, um, and mm -hmm. and the way that I got connected with that was through my parents wanting to infuse and have culture be a part of 
of our family and, and African-centered culture be a part of our family. My, my mother, you know, was looking for spaces to, to that, that, that help, helped her to like advance herself and understand herself in terms of African identity, but that were also family oriented. And so we came into West African drumming because usually wherever there's West African dance classes, there's, there's, West, African, there's West African drumming classes. And it came natural to me over time, but the thing that's really important about this is that, that West African drumming was actually an instrument of healing that walked with me throughout my life, and I and I mm-hmm. it, it came natural to me, and I and I began. I eventually I I I, I studied under different world class musicians, and then started to teach classes and use West African drumming in the in the school system spaces to 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 be able to more effectively connect with students who are typically seen as like the problem children or the children that can't sit still, or the students that are pathologized and and tracked into like the 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 you know the mentally delayed classes are told that they have ADHD, but then when you bring something that's more culturally relevant, like West African drumming or other culturally relevant curriculums, all of a sudden those students are able to be engaged in a more, much more effective way and they, they're locked in because they can, they, they can relate with that. They understand it. They, they might not be able to explicitly say it, but they can feel that this comes from something, some part of their identity. And so these students perform a lot better within class and, and, they, and, their, and their behavior is much more engaged and they respond a lot better to the curriculum through like infusing ideas such as like West African drumming. And then the other way that I use that is in terms of like mental health. And so for myself personally, like the power of spaces such as West African drumming is that, like I said, it's an instrument of healing. These are tools of communication and space. it's also about just self-expression. And so for me throughout my life, like that's been something that has helped me to stay connected with my identity. It's helped with my confidence over time, you know, in terms of being able to have some artistic talent that I can develop with throughout my life and, and that contributes to who I am as in my identity and help me to connect with other communities and not just black communities, but communities across cultures mm-hmm. and through that 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 musical element. And and the thing that's really beautiful about the West African drumming is that it's something that every culture and every indigenous community has like its musical elements and its indigenous practices and its rites and rituals. And West African, West African drumming is a, w- a way to connect even across the world. And so West African drumming is one of those spaces that helps me tap into self-care as well as like meditation, spaces of meditation, including um, mindfulness. And I regularly practice yoga. I don't necessarily like to call it yoga though, because yoga is more of a like a Western Eurocentric term. And although practices such as yoga have been done, for thousands of years, Eastern traditions, African traditions, comedic yoga, but these are things that I practice on a regular basis that really help to keep me centered in terms of self-care and practice as well. Awesome, awesome. I think it's a good time for us to come into kind of our, our closing segment, and um, usually what we do is uh, we want to talk about the elephant in the room. You know, like one of the things is, is part of like naming it is that we call out the elephant in the room, and for, for uh, when we bring in a guest, we want you to tell us kind of what's that thing that no one usually asks you about or no one usually talks about in your space and the work that you do that you think, no, nah, we should have been focused. We should focus on that. Like, this is the thing. This is the elephant in the room that needs to get fixed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think one of the, one of the elephants in the, in the room would be when we're trying to have conversations and dialogues around things related to diversity and difficult dialogues systemic oppression, and especially when we have to have those conversations as black individuals and as persons of color within predominantly white spaces. And the thing that we really need to be naming is what communities are really benefiting the most from those conversations. Mm -hmm. And for me, what I've observed over years, you know, while Cal does and UC Berkeley does a lot of like important work around social justice, 
you know, with this being another predominantly white space, oftentimes the thing that hurts me is when I see members of our black community and my black colleagues and black and brown colleagues feeling emotionally impacted and, and, and emotionally burdened by having to sit through dialogues about diversity and multicultural trainings where it's the burden lies on black individuals to teach other individuals, non-black individuals, uh, how to move in a multiculturally sensitive and competent way. And so we walk away from those conversations feeling burdened and, and with a more emotional trauma oftentimes while other communities are benefiting at the expense of like mm-hmm. what, you know, the ways that we're allowing ourselves to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And so really we wanted to be clear and name that and not, not, and not be in denial about what communities are negatively impacted by some mm-hmm. of these conversations and what communities benefit from these conversations. And, and at the end of the day, keeping in, keeping in mind that, it, yes, it's important for all of us to be having these conversations, but how can we all be having these conversations in a safe way for all communities, mm-hmm. uh, especially the marginalized black and brown communities? Um, and, and just how can we just be more careful about how we approach these conversations, especially within predominantly white spaces? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. definitely real. I think it comes up for, for all of us mm-hmm. uh, in the work that we do and uh, really trying to, you know, coming back to the theme of, of the podcast, really validating the lived experiences. And um, when spaces that are um, constructed in such a way where they are identity specific or for uh, collective healing on the on the outside, oftentimes people will say, well, that's, you know, it's really separatist. Like, why, why can't we all be in the same room together? And one of the ways to kind of push back and add some additional perspective on that is helping people understand that it is... Um, and helpful for people developmentally to mm-hmm. pe- to be in spaces where they are developmentally appropriate, right? Mm-hmm. And then also recognizing that that while you, someone might be learning in a developmentally appropriate way, mm-hmm. that practice could be harmful to somebody else, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So we don't want to necessarily shut people down who uh, need who are sort of uh, developing their their language skills around diversity and inclusion or sort of sorting through perhaps their lived experiences or things that that, that come from their own upbringing but how can they do those works work right with mm-hmm. themselves mm-hmm. and in spaces that that can hold that and mm-hmm. that's a container for that mm-hmm. and where other people who may be harmed by those sort mm-hmm. of sorting through or or stumbling through right can mm-hmm. have a different space that is more healing for them yeah i think mm-hmm. one of the things about the whole issue is that we there needs to be a reframing of of what these kind of trainings and these spaces are because from my understanding when someone comes in with a low level of competence and their competence building is uh dependent on other people with higher levels of competence helping them to raise their competence, that's called training, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so every person in the room who's training people in the room who aren't as high as them in competence need to be treated like a trainer, which means they need to be compensated, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about, like, emotional labor, I like to flip it and just say, like, yo, this is labor labor, mm-hmm. you know? And mm-hmm. labor, I want to get paid for that. And I think that that's, that's something that companies and, like, different spaces need to understand is, like, if you're going to be putting your employees or your, you know, in these spaces where your black and brown folks are going to have to like help your white folks get up on something. Or if you're going to put your men in a space where your women are going to have to help them fix it. Mm -hmm. Like the people who are helping the facilitator need to get compensated for that. Mm -hmm. Or you hire a facilitator. Like if you need a black person in the room to like fix it, Hey, hire me, Mm -hmm. but you're going to pay me. Mm -hmm. You know, I ain't going to do that for free. You Mm -hmm. know, you're going to pay the full price that you pay every other white person to do stuff like this, you know, Mm -hmm. because it's a, it, I mean, like, I think that we live in this kind of capitalist space where things are monetized and people don't take things serious until you until you actually put a price tag on it. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, 
Yeah, and 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 because of the 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 trauma and the pain that can come result from these spaces when when we don't have properly trained facilitators, right. you know, in managing these spaces. As one of the things that has been important for me to do is to create more safer spaces yeah. on and off campus to uplift our communities and to, to 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 contribute to the healing of our communities. So, for example, establishing a, a men of color support group years ago at Cal and and for our, with our black therapists, we we now have more black therapists at Cal than we ever have mm-hmm. in, the, in in the history of from to my not to my knowledge working at Cal. And it's yeah. a, a really important image that that the black community sees but all communities see in terms of like being able to visually look at and touch what do black mental health therapists look like and and what impacts can we have on our campus in general and especially the black community when we have larger numbers within these spaces and when we're able to establish other spaces such as like now we have a black um, a black women support group that has recently been created as well that is going to create more supportive spaces for black women on campus as well so these are some of the important things that are that are happening that we're doing to in a social justice way in a leadership and an advocacy way to to create and uplift the communities around us. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Right. So I think that's a great place for us to close out this episode. It's been mm-hmm. wonderful having you on, Dr. Mm-hmm. Anderson, mm-hmm. Bedford. Mm-hmm. Um, where can we find you all on social media if people want to get at you, look mm-hmm. you up? Yeah, so my my social media, so on Instagram is Dr. Adisa Anderson, you know, just just like that. Dr. Adisa underscore Anderson, and you should be able to find me just right there on on Instagram and or on Facebook with as as Adisa Adisa Anderson, Adisa so Thomas Anderson. For the for the culturally challenged, could you uh, spell your first oh, name? Oh yes, folks? yes, indeed. Thank you. So first name, thank you for that. First name spelled A D I S A. Last name Anderson. Right. Mm-hmm. Don't you have a private practice? Too, uh, Indeed, I do. There? Thank you for that. Yeah. I, and so I do. I have what I what I describe as a social justice oriented private practice, which has been another beautiful thing in terms of uh, being a black male, but also being able to engage in entrepreneurship and to also manage what I want mental health to look like for our black community. And and I, I primarily I see a variety of individuals like persons of color, like in black and brown communities, but primarily my clientele right now are mainly black men. And, and I think the significance in that is is that on, oftentimes you hear there's a stereotype that black folks don't care about mental health or don't seek therapy, but most of the clients that I have are black men who are working professionals and directors and venture capitalists and, and students going, you know, getting ready to go off to college that are seriously invested in, in prioritizing their own mental health. And so, yeah, so this has been something that's really been restorative to, to me in terms of my identity as well as I expand professionally and engage in this work in terms of private practice on the side as well as the important work that I've been doing at UC Berkeley for the black community and, and, and in a variety of different communities that are marginalized and historically underserved. All right. Mm-hmm. So thank you, man. I appreciate you coming out. Uh, you, y'all can find uh, me at DRBF Palmer on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find it on Facebook. Um, what about you, Lamisha? At Lamisha Hill. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and find me there. All right. And then mm-hmm. always go ahead and check out our website, namingitpodcast.com. We got stuff in the store, newsletter. Mm-hmm. Please subscribe. Indeed. Support. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to name? Yeah, well, you know, and you can uh, follow Naming It Podcast on Instagram and on Twitter and on Facebook. 
Um, all of us are on LinkedIn too, I believe. So, you know, mm-hmm. yes, I've been indeed. finding, I've been getting a lot of people hollering on LinkedIn recently. And so like from a business perspective, there's a lot of, there's a lot of projects and stuff that you might want one of the people who are on the radio talking to you right now to help with. And I think that we're probably available for extra stuff. Absolutely. Thanks, right. thanks for that plug. Yeah. So Get music, yeah, music on Naming It. We always want to give a shout out to Lee England Jr., the soul violinist. Yes. And uh, do we want to holler at uh, Megasonic? Oh, yeah. yeah, in the studio in Oakland, down in the Bay Area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, Jeremy, doc, doc, Dr. Megasonic, uh, the official, uh, the, the honorary doctor right there. Yeah. Giving us up with that good sound. Absolutely. So we uh, want to send you all out into the world uh, as your best empowered self. So keep on naming it, y'all. Peace. <laughs>